Hey, before the show, we just wanted to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, check out more content at mamaronicpublicradio.com. Thanks so much. What's good? Okay, no thank you. Why, hello there. Okay. I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Greetings, everyone. What's up, Mamaronic? Howdy, folks. Who wrote this stuff? Are you serious? Why, hello there. That's your only line! What do you mean? That's your only line! Try a different language! Hello, this is Borat. Yag's a mess. It's so easy, why don't you guys try? Good morning, and welcome to NPR's Before the Bell. I'm Sam Rabohagan. In this season, we're bringing you news and updates on everything that has to do with the current war in Ukraine. Check out our latest episode to better understand the roots of Russia-Ukraine hostilities and how we got here. At the time of this recording, it has been over two months since Russia invaded Ukraine. In that time, Western intelligence believes that between seven and 10,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. An estimated 10 million Ukrainians have been forced to leave their homes, and the UN has reported that 3,100 Ukrainians have been killed, a number the UN says is probably much higher. Today, in two parts, with fellow NPR student producer Anna Robarts, we'll be diving into the different reasons some Ukrainian civilians are stuck in the country and the process of leaving for those who have fled. Let's begin with Ukrainian civilians that still remain in the country. Anna, can you walk me through what's keeping these people from leaving? So the majority of civilians who haven't been able to leave are in the eastern part of Ukraine. And in this eastern half of Ukraine, there are four major cities that rest on the front lines of the war. There's Donetsk, Luhansk, Kharkiv, and Mariupol. So many Ukrainians living in these cities cannot leave. The fighting around them is so intense that leaving their homes isn't safe. And Kharkiv and Mariupol, again, are two of Ukraine's most populated cities. So this is a very significant amount of people that are trapped. Exactly. In early April, after the biggest wave of evacuations out of Mariupol, there were believed to be around 100,000 citizens remaining in the city. The combined population of these two cities is around 2 million people. And though the majority of the cities have both been evacuated, there is still a vast remainder of people who have been unable to leave. So let's talk about those that are trapped, and specifically those 100,000 in Mariupol. What kind of state is Mariupol in right now? And what does life look like for all of its remaining residents? Mariupol felt the impacts of the war almost immediately after the invasion. Almost all communications in and out of the city were lost by March 2nd. The supply of gas and electricity was cut days later. Not long after the residents realized that stores wouldn't be opening, that widespread looting began across the city. One couple that moved into Mariupol in 2017 to open a small business were forced to stand outside in quite literally the middle of a war zone to guard their store. It's been a pretty disastrous 72 days for Mariupol. 
And in early April, the local city council described the city as the ashes of a dead land. Mariupol's mayor described the Russian assault as genocide, saying that the Russians are destroying everything that lives. Hospital windows have been fully blown out by constant explosions, and one Ukrainian who spent three nights in treatment said that everything was covered in blood. The fighting is constant. Anyone remaining in the city is essentially at the mercy of the Russian military. One Ukrainian woman described Mariupol residents as flies that the Russians were trying to extinguish one by one. There can be an explosion, a direct hit, at any moment. So another story that's materialized over the last week or two out of Mariupol is the Asivstal steel plant. The plant is one of very few areas of the city that still remain somewhat under Ukrainian control. It became home to hundreds of Mariupol residents, many of whom were suffering from significant injuries. Anna, can you tell us a little more as to why this story is relevant? Right, so early in the morning of May 1st, Ukrainian officials had finally begun evacuating trapped residents out of the plant before it came under heavy Russian fire that night. The evacuation had been paused once again. The plant, one of the only Ukrainian bases still standing strong just last week, is now almost completely destroyed with hundreds of civilians trapped inside. And remember, Ukrainian officials still estimate around 100,000 people remain in Mariupol a city that Russia is intent on taking control of, no matter the means. So Anna, the situation in eastern Ukraine is pretty severe, and especially in Mariupol and Kharkiv, where many civilians are still trapped. But what about the rest of Ukraine that isn't in the direct firing line of the Russian invasion? How many Ukrainian residents living in Kyiv and to the west still remain in the country, and what are their reasons for staying? So, almost immediately after the invasion began back in February, the Ukrainian border guard announced that any adult male between the age of 18 to 60 was banned from leaving the country. And in a country of 43 million people, that demographic is extremely large. There are, of course, exceptions made for those physically incapable of fighting or fathers that have three or more children, but we're still easily looking at millions of Ukrainian men that cannot legally leave the country. And what is the Ukrainian government requiring of the men they are forcing to stay behind? Because this policy certainly seems like one that's being enforced in pursuit of military reinforcement. So how is that process being carried out? So this isn't Ukraine stopping adult men at the border checkpoints, putting them on a bus, and dropping them on the front lines of the war. Most of the men are not fighting, but they're being conscripted and are receiving basic training in the event that they're actually needed. But there are also a lot of volunteers that have been fighting and defending their homes. These civilian militias have been important to bolstering the Ukrainian defense. That's really important to understand here, that Ukraine, at this point, is holding their own. Kyiv is still standing, and it doesn't appear to be at the point of surrendering anytime soon. The nation as a whole, despite its eastern regions being decimated, is still standing considerably strong on its own two feet. Ukraine isn't saying, oh, we have nothing left, we'll take anything and everything we can get. Morale seems to be high here, or at least a lot higher two months into the war than I think anyone, including Ukraine itself, really expected. Absolutely. You know, I don't think I would necessarily say morale is high, but the country is surviving for now. And that's definitely something I don't think many, and most importantly, Vladimir Putin, anticipated.
And a quick update before we leave. There has been an important development regarding Mariupol after the writing and recording of this episode. On May 16th, the Ukrainian military officially announced their surrender in the city. The decision was made in order to save the lives of the remaining Ukrainian troops in the city and provide medical aid to 50 soldiers who were seriously injured. Deputy Prime Minister Irena Verischuk said that Ukraine is actively looking to trade Russian prisoners of war for the captured defenders of Mariupol. Taking into account how quickly things have been developing, it's important to stay up to date with what is going on and how things are changing. That's what we're here for, telling the stories of the war, ensuring that we're all informed enough to have constructive conversations about the conflict. If you're interested in supporting those affected by the violence in Ukraine, check out the Ukraine Crisis Fund at my.care.org and consider making a donation. Stay tuned for part two of this episode where we discuss who has left Ukraine and how that process is being carried out. Again, I'm Sam Wehagen. And I'm Anna Robarts. And, and you've, you've been, been listening, listening to NPR's Before the, the Bell. Bell.